Hello and welcome to the Sports Show Podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. And joining me, as always, is the checkered Ruben Williams. How are you, mate? G'day, Ryan. I'm fantastic. Thank you. And great to see you've gone with the checks too. <laughs> I love it when we, uh, we're matching clothes into the office. It happens almost every single day, believe it yeah. or not. Uh, but uh, the checkered one is probably not one that we've matched too often on. So no. <laughs> you're looking great, my friend. I must say, I'm, uh, I'm new to the checker. Mm. I haven't gone a check shirt for some time, if ever, uh, and I've recently made a little purchase. I see yours is a Ralph Lauren. I've actually gone the Gazman job, which is very um, – <laughs> I don't know if we're profiling our, our listeners out there, but yeah. I, was just, I, w- I would say it's probably over over 35. You, you, are, you are aging every day at the moment. <laughs> Not only have you gone for the Gazman, but you've tucked it into your <laughs> pants as well. <laughs> I just it, it didn't quite sit well outside the tuck, so I thought let's tuck her in today. And then you've got the uh, the what do you call them the uh, the chinos on to match it too. You, the cream, you, yeah. I feel like I've stepped into your doctor's office. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know, we all have our uh, our fashion. <laughs> what do we call it? Love tastes. Tastes. <laughs> so, I did notice you've been wearing the checkered a little bit lately, so I thought I need to get one. Nice. So. Anyway, great start to the show as per usual. It's getting better and better. That's it. As we get into the 190s now That's of, it. of the podcast. It's picking up. Enormous. So let's get cracking. We're on the march to 200, by the way. Mm. I don't know what we're going to do for that. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out on the way. Anyway, let's get cracking. I'm Ryan Walker. He's Ruben Williams. And we are two mates who met at Cricket Australia. And now we help people find their own dream job through this very podcast and our online community. If you want to follow us, head over to LinkedIn or even better, if you want to connect with us and hundreds of others working in sport, jump into the Sports Grad community. And a quick shout out to our special members of the Sports Grad community and one in particular we're going to give a shout out to, and that is Ethan Coombs, who is a membership sales representative at the Melbourne Storm. He's just picked up that brand new job. Ethan is a very special case because he came to us through his mum, believe it or not. His mum- Great story. This is one of the great stories that's come through Sportsgrad. One day, his mum puts up a post on LinkedIn and says, hey, does anyone have any thoughts or ideas on how my son, who's interested in sport, can get a foot in the door of the sports industry? And and he didn't ask for this post, but I was putting that out there. His mum has just got involved. (laughs) And- um, Someone tagged me in the post and I commented and said, hey, this is SportsCrowd. This is what we do. This is how we can help you. Mm. And then I think someone tagged you as well and you sent the same message to Ethan's mum. Hey, this is SportsCrowd. This is how we can help you. Yeah. And by the end of the day, Ethan had signed up to the membership and now he's working at the Melbourne Storm. So <laughs> kudos to Ethan's mum for getting him on board because it's led to a great job for Ethan. Kudos to LinkedIn Marketing too it's, uh, and the community out there who's supporting yeah, everyone by chucking the sports grad logo on there. So kudos to mums on LinkedIn. That is just fantastic. Yeah, I think. my mum's on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, shout out to mum. She'll give you a shout out on LinkedIn as well. She likes all my all my posts. <laughs> listens to every episode. She's probably watching this episode right now. So. Perfect. Well, Good if on. you are like Ethan and you want a foot in the door of the sports industry, or if you are like the Melbourne Storm and you want to save time hiring or just hire the best people on offer. Or if you're just like us, you're early in your career, you want to get out there and network with the likes of Cricket Australia, Netball Australia, AFL clubs, NRL clubs, then jump into the sports grad community because there really is something for everybody inside. So head to the link in our show notes to get involved with that. Absolutely, Rubes. Uh, quick shout out to our good friends at Deakin University who've been with us since day one. 
Australia, if you haven't, if you if you don't know this, you're under a rock. You're living under it. But in the next ten years, we're about to head into the golden decade of sport in this nation. We've got ten major global sporting events over the next ten years, which is going to be absolutely huge. However, Deacon recently did a quick study, and it basically still showed that awareness of you know sport as an industry and the, and the growth within that is still relatively low. And that's astonishing to me. So basically the fact that we're going to a golden decade means there's going to be thousands of job opportunities out there. So uh, now is the time to, uh, to get into sport. So if you want to be one of the first in line for those thousands of jobs in the golden decade, study with the world's best at Deakin. So visit the Deakin website. Deakin is ranked number one in the world for sports science and six in the world for sports-related subjects. So get around them. Mm. Now, Ryan, we're talking to an amazing guest today. It is none other than Susie Ruthick from the Sydney Swans. Susie has got a Bachelor of Psychology and a Master's in Clinical Psychology and now works as the clinical psychologist inside the Sydney Swans. They are an incredible organisation who have developed an amazing culture and it's because of their investment in people like Susie who do a great job to make sure everyone's feeling great about themselves that they have had the on-field success that they've had. So there's a lot to look forward to this. But my favourite thing is just getting a look inside the life of a psychologist inside the sports industry. It's not something we've covered before, but it's super, super interesting to hear what she gets up to day in, day out at the Sydney Swans. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it. Uh, I love the the difference between, you know, in her role is profiling players you know, in terms of their well-being, but also how they aim to recruit players. So mm. she's screening all those different aspects of young men and women looking to enter the AFL program. Uh, there's a lot more than just sports psychology than what meets the eye, which is which is awesome. So really interesting stuff. Mm. And finally, we got a quick masterclass into a skill that everybody needs in every single job. Yeah. And that is the ability to show empathy. And now it comes very naturally to, to Suze, hence she's a psychologist, but she gave us her, her quick masterclass on how we can start to show it and, and use it if it doesn't come as naturally to us. So uh, a great little insight from her there. Fantastic, Rubes. This is an absolute cracker episode for those tuning in. So let's get cracking. Grab a pen. Enjoy this chat with Susie Ruthick. Suze, welcome to the Sports Grab podcast. Thanks so much for having me, boys. It's um. It's always good to talk about what I do and um, and the work that I do. I, I really enjoy having conversations. So thanks for, for the opportunity. So we, we really appreciate you coming on. It's awesome to have someone from the Sydney Swans on the show finally. Uh, but I want to give a bit of background as to how we came to chat with you. Now, one day we got a notification on Instagram and one of our followers sent us a message saying, hey, Ruben and Ryan, do you happen to have any podcasts with a sports psychologist? I'm thinking about going down this path, but I have no idea what's involved. And I said to them, no, we, we actually don't, but we can put the word out. So that led to me putting a post out on LinkedIn saying, hey, we're trying to find a sports psychologist. Does anybody know anyone? And we had about a dozen people come back tagging their friends in the comments. There were you know, former psychologists of the Australian cricket team. There were world surfing league psychologists. There were people from leading teams, all these different organizations. We thought... This is too hard to pick. So we sent the options back to the follower who sent through the request and she picked you. So we're, we're very happy <laughs> wow. that you've agreed to do this after the journey that we've been on to, to come and chat with you. 
I had no idea that that was your recruitment process. Um, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have selected myself amongst such a like a high caliber group. But anyway, we'll see. We'll see how we go. Yeah, no pressure now. So I thought I'd just no. like that. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do that for recruiting going forward, I would have thought. Yeah, I think so. I'll just pick them all for us. It's quite easy. Yeah. Um, but, Suze, we are, we are new to this world of sports psychology as well. However, you consider yourself a clinical psychologist who works in an AFL club as opposed to a sports psychologist. I was wondering if we could start by getting an explanation from you as to what your role looks like in comparison to a sports psychologist. Yeah, good question. I mean, I guess um, the the bread and butter of our training would be the same for a sports psychologist and a, and a clinical psychologist. It's just at that point of specialisation when when a person chooses which master's route to go down that, that you would choose a different course. So I chose a clinical master's um, with the view that I could work across a number of different settings rather than just um, staying in sport necessarily, even though it's where I am and I, it's where I love and, and I can't see myself moving away. Um, and I guess what that enables me to do in a, in a high performance environment is manage the players' mental health as well as their performance goals. Um, now, in the AFL, there's a real mix of psychologists, and I do um, in, in in that collegiate environment. I, there are definitely sports and performance psychologists, and so I learn a lot from them about their approach to athletes and how it might differ from what I do. Um, but first and foremost our club's goal is the mental health and well-being of the playing group. Um, and that's that they make no apologies about that being their focus and hence why they've, they've sought a, a clinical psychologist to look after their group. Um, but again, a lot of my my day-to-day behaviours would be really similar to somebody that's working as a sports psych in a, in a high-performance environment like this. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the kind of the common things that you might expect are education of the of the playing group and the coaching staff um, which ultimately is under that umbrella of prevention so if we can educate the group to know what to look for uh, to know how to respond um, within themselves and, and to their peers as well then we can almost do half my job for me but of course you're going to have people in the cohort that do either come with um, existing mental health concerns or develop them as a result of perhaps being in this high um, high pressure environment um, I think, you know, we think athletes are immune from from all sorts of things and, and yet they're just people um, that come into, to, into this space and have a lot of um, their own expectations and arguably others' expectations placed on them. And for some people, that's that's just really challenging and that can certainly affect their mental health along the way. So um, there is certainly a percentage of the group that I'm working more clinically with in terms of assessment and diagnosis and intervention. Um, and I, I feel really privileged to work in a high-performance environment because there's a lot of collaboration that goes on, whether it's with the medical team uh, from a from a you know more of a medical model with with doctors and psychiatrists, or whether it's more from the performance perspective, and I'm working closely with um, our our high performance team, trainers, coaches, um, even sort of the physio staff in in that regard as well. So there's there's kind of. I think I love the fact that I can work across the spectrum in a sports environment. I can really work with those that are motivated to really enhance their career. And, and I guess what the language we would use as psychologists is in that flourishing space, um, right through to people that would, again, psych, psych speak, and we would describe as maybe languishing or needing some some additional support for their mental health. So that's the beauty, I think, of working in a sports in a space like this as a psychologist is I, I'm seeing people across that spectrum and have the opportunity to work in different ways with with individuals. Um, and then I guess, you know, a couple of interesting parts of my role that 
I, I add on to, to some of those kind of core elements are some research opportunities. It's a pretty unique group. And so um, having access to, to these athletes and um, starting to understand how they might differ from their, the, the general population or within the AFL cohort, how our group compares to other um, AFL teams. Um, and then a really interesting part of my role is in the recruitment space as well and starting to look at athletes as they're coming into the system um, and certainly at the other end and transitioning into their next career as well, really working across that sort of lifespan of an athlete. Yeah, unreal. And, and for those listening, so do these roles exist in every AFL club, do you think, or is it very niche for Sydney to have this exact role? No, no, they, they exist in every club. Um, you know, the how much time and, and resources are put into it is, is at the discretion of the club. You know, there's yeah. each club has a has a, a like a budget, I guess, as far as spending on mental health goes and um, and how that's divvied up between the various roles. I'm the only psych at the club, but I certainly have support, as I said, from the medical team and our wellbeing um, player development managers at the club. Um, the, the interesting space is working in the women's team. So Sydney have got their inaugural women's team starting mm. this season. Um, and that that is looking a bit different from club to club as to whether each club has a psychologist or they're using resources through the AFL Players Association and not necessarily having a, a, an in-house psychologist. Um, so, but but in terms of the men's team, it's it's pretty standard and some clubs will even have two psychologists um, as well. So it's, it's well resourced. Just so I can get clear on the kind of differences between the two, from what I understand, it sounds like a clinical psychologist might help a player who's moved to a new state for the first time and is feeling some anxiety around uh, moving away from friends and family, whereas a sports psychologist might help someone who is struggling to focus on kicking for goal. Is, is that kind of at a broad yeah. level how they might differ? Yeah, and and I probably step out of my lane a little bit in in terms of uh, I would I would also contribute to some of those discussions around more of the pure performance side of things. Whereas, I guess that's where some of the barriers exist for a sports and performance psychologist. They probably can't step into the or probably wouldn't step into the clinical space as much. If I'm sort of bold enough to say something like that, I think one thing that might also differ is even just in the location of where you have those conversations. I'm. I'm sitting in my room here where players come and speak and we have a confidential conversation, whereas I know colleagues of mine who are more in the sports and performance space would be out on the training track and having more live conversations, I guess, with an athlete and a coach that's um, that's really real time about, you know, the, the, the certain skills or aspects of their sport that they're trying to refine. And maybe that's another key difference too. Um, is, it, is that hmm. stuff that you, you've done in the past? Like, will you literally be standing next to someone who's trying to kick and you ask them, how do you feel right now? Oh, it's interesting. I actually, through the week in my private practice, I was working with a tennis player and her parents asked me to go to the court. And it was so foreign for me to be, I felt like a fish out of water. And it was really good for me to have that experience because I think I'm so comfortable in my office and I, I'm asking people to come from their worlds into my space. And I sometimes probably underestimate how um, daunting or overwhelming or uncomfortable that might be and it was really great to have the tables turned on me and to be the one that was unfamiliar and in foreign territory um, and it was great to see that the conversations that we're having opposite each other in the room were translating into kind of um, 
real-time decisions and real-time strategies that they were able to put into place on the court. So that was that was a new experience for me. It's not something I am doing much of. Um, and I, I think in the club, I really do try to set myself back from some of the training um, aspects because there is still, um, I've still got boundaries to observe in terms of confidentiality. And so the last thing I want to do is to alienate a player out on the field by starting a conversation that we've otherwise had in my room or that we're going to have in my room and for them to feel uncomfortable about, oh gosh, here comes Suze, what's she going to say? Is she going to bring up stuff that we've, you know, that I've asked her not to mention to the coach? So there is probably a little bit of a, um, a difference there, I guess, in the way that I work to, to perhaps somebody that's more embedded in the sports and performance mm program must be quite rewarding though seeing seeing it in real time like i'd imagine for a you know for a clinical psychologist out there that probably helps someone during the week and then say they form on the weekend you wouldn't really see that firsthand but for you you can kind of see 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 the progress that that people are having firsthand you can literally go out the field and, and see the impact that you've had yeah i i'd love to say it's as simple as that i guess i guess <laughs> You know, people and athletes are so are so complex. There are so many variables that are going into their training and into their processes each week. That sure, I might be sitting at home or in the at the game, sort of watching and thinking. I think like they're going for you know they're going for goal. I know I know what their process is here, and yeah. are they doing the things that we spoke about in the room, or you know they've made a mistake? Are they resetting in the way that we discussed, or are they using some of the things that we we kind of came up with together? Um, but I could easily just as I could just as easily say no. That's the coach that's responsible for that, or that's you know the physio that kind of worked on them in the break that you know had a really impactful kind of thing to say. So, yeah, it's it, you can't kind of have an ego in it. You know, it's it's satisfying yeah. to see things come together, but you know, it's just a it's a like I'm a small piece of the of the puzzle. I hope you don't mind us continuing to de- dig because this is super fascinating for me at least. Um, do you, do you mind taking us inside the mind of an athlete when they are in a performance situation and share what what are some of the things that go on in their head and, and how do you help work them through that yeah i guess to be honest this is it's probably not that different to, to to a lot of your listeners who have had some experience of pressure and and high performance whether it's to do with sitting a school exam or public speaking or doing your wedding speech or you know something that you really care about and that you want to go well a lot of like our athletes are doing that week in week out and they're just really habituated and familiarized and and in most many cases they're seeking out that that rush and that thrill of of kind of being on edge whereas other people I guess would turn away from that and maybe avoid some of those situations so I think that um and I even though I'm working in this space I I, I feel it's you know, fair to say, I'm still on the outer in terms of that playing group. It's it's a very intimate, you know, experience in terms of what it must be like for them. I can only imagine, um, you know, what it must be like to run up the race or to kind of come down after a really big win or even, you know, after a, a, like a, a poor performance and how they're, how they're thinking and feeling. But, you know, essentially, I think um, we, we, we kind of keep the language focusing about process. So when they're, when they're preparing for a game, my hope is that they're not thinking about, you know, the outcomes and the GPS data and what their parents are going to say and what the coach is going to say on Monday, but just about the steps that they need to take to execute their role, to um, to kind of be consistent with their trademark and what and the you know what we've picked them for in the team. Um, I hope that they're feeling a certain amount of confidence because they've done everything through the week consistently that leads to that 
you know, to, to deserving to feel that sort of confidence. I hope that they're able to absorb some of the energy that that being playing in that sort of environment naturally would would um, offer. Um, and it's 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 you know listening to the boys speaking after playing in COVID for a couple of years where there were no crowds. It's it's a really they really do relish the opportunity to be um, you know to play in front of, of, of fans and and people. Um, I think that. Um, yeah, sure. You know, there's a certain amount of anxiety that that comes with performance, and in my role, it's really important to educate them about the benefits of anxiety. Um, it's just about finding a sweet spot. So it's not about having none. It's not about having too much. It's just about having a moderate amount, which is easier said than done in terms of kind of individually working out what does that what does that look like for for a player. Um, but I think we've, we, you know, I, I think I do an okay job of, of working out what's when somebody is in distress and when somebody's under aroused and when they find that that state of flow that I guess most athletes are going for, where you do have a certain amount of mod, you know moderate amount of anxiety going through you. So, you know, to that effect, what does that feel like? Well, you know, you can feel it in your guts. You can feel it in, um, you know, you can feel you can you can be sweaty. You can feel it in terms of your heart racing a little bit even before you've done much. You can feel it in thoughts um you know maybe buzzing around a little bit but hopefully starting to to kind of settle and 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 be in a really deeply concentrated state so that you can make good decisions when you're out there um yeah i don't know i'm just trying to picture myself in that environment but and and i was an athlete once upon a time so i'm sort of drawing on some of that experience to think about you know what was it like to to get out there and and to have that white line fever and to to be absolutely raring to go Nice. You, you mentioned um, you, you're basically you work in the recruitment phase of, of the footy club as well. Um, and I'm interested to see sort of how, how do you profile a player for, you know, well-being purposes compared to profiling a player for recruitment purposes? Is, is there a major difference there at all? Yeah, look, interestingly, there, there's really not. Like, you know, the... the the AFL dictates some some of the measures and the metrics that we can use as as club psychologists to uh, as part of that recruitment process. So it's a reasonably new addition to the recruitment team, and instead of just looking at their football talent and and sort of getting gaming reports from parents and coaches and things like that, we're we're starting to I guess more holistically look at the characters that we're bringing into the club. So from that perspective, we are looking for measures of well-being, um, including things like, you know, their emotional intelligence, their resilience, their their coping strategies, um, their social supports and personal and professional supports, certainly some more clinical aspects like their personality um, traits and, and some anxiety and depression and things like that. But, you know, all of that is well-being. And so we're recruiting people that we, we want to understand where they are on those measures and how we can support them in the club. And what we should be aware of, um, you know, from a bit of a predictive element, how what things might trip them up down the track, and how we're going to respond to support them. And do you do that through like a, a questionnaire, or are you interviewing every single person? Both. So um, there are, I think, there's five questionnaires that the players complete throughout the year, um, and at this stage, that just relates to the men's program. So the women. Um, Again, maybe it's a resourcing um, kind of issue, but that they don't have the same um, assessment data that the, that the men have, although I think that's beginning this year. So the, the club sites get the five questionnaires from, from the, um, the AFL 
sort of midway about now midway through the year um and then it's my job to go through and and kind of I guess pull out the meaningful information and then I use that information to draft uh, an interview or an assessment that I'm going to do with each player and then I get a list of you know however many names 60 names or whatever it might be and over the course of the next couple of months I start to book those players in and, and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and um, I you know, put that information together into a report and I feed that back to our recruitment team. And then there's there's, there's so many layers to it. There's lots more conversations that I had. Um, but it, at least that gives the, um, the recruiters, a, again, a sense of not just the football talent that might be coming into the space, but the, the sort of person we'd be looking to draft, how they're going to fit into our dynamic and what support they might need when they get here. The more you talk about it, the more I can start to picture like past examples in the AFL system who have, you know, come through been an, an incredible talent but then the afl system just hasn't been for them and uh, i'm guessing mm -hmm. those are the sort of things you can start to pick up on uh early on with with the help of your work yeah look i, I guess i like to think so i mean we we i certainly retrospectively look over the data sometimes when there has been um a case of somebody that you know that it just the system hasn't suited them or it hasn't worked out for them and I and I do look back over data if I've got some and just kind of see could we have predicted this could we have done things differently so it becomes a learning experience for us or for me as an individual and for us as a club about how to use that data um, in the most meaningful way yeah brilliant and you mentioned earlier about the range of um scenarios that you get uh, thrown how, how do you deal with all the different sort of cases from everyone with like you know you got buddy franklin who's thinking about kicking a thousand goals versus someone who might be in and out of the senior side like um how do you deal with the spectrum of um cases oh i guess it's like it keeps my job I, I value that like it keeps my work really really interesting and um i do treat every person that comes in on an individual basis as to what their particular needs are and um i guess it, it's a skill set of a psychologist to be able to switch from from one client to the next or one person to the next and, and you often don't have a lot of time between appointments to kind of get out of that phase of thinking and, and kind of get into the next one so i have i do i'm a really well prepared sort of person and I often like I, I know in my diary who I'm seeing that day and and, and have a sense of the flavour of the conversation that I'm going to have and maybe it's required me to do some research or get some resources together or um, or it might just be holding space for that person and just knowing that that's all that that individual might need and take the pressure off myself and just kind of be be with that person as they need it so um I, yeah i'm grateful for the variety of of the work that i have it's not overwhelming it's 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 one of the best parts of my job love it um speaking more broadly about your role you're obviously considered you know you're in the high performance staff how are you then used by the coaches and the, and the wider group and and are there some situations where they will call you in for some input on certain things? Like, how does that look for, from your role point of view? Oh, I'd be the most frustrating staff member to have for sure because <laughs> I'm, I've got all these, you know, I've got rules and I've got boundaries in terms of confidentiality that I just can't um, overstep. Now, I do work in private practice as well and there is a real difference between um, 
conversations that happen and and you know the challenge in a football club is considering who the client is you know at the end of the day that the club is the client as opposed to the individual so how i get around that because that can be really tricky for psychologists in this space is i have a really open conversation with the players when they come to the club and i have a really um, open conversation with the coaches about what i will and what i won't share um and um they can they there there can be times where they ask me things and I just have to say you know without the player's permission I can't disclose that or um, I'll get the player to come and have a chat to you about that and I do I really do try to encourage the players to be having those more personal conversations with with coaches or other staff members because I see it build their relationship and the trust um, which is absolutely critical for a football club to or any you know high performance team to have that level of trust between staff and and players or coaches and players um but sure there are plenty of meetings where i go in and absorb and value a lot of the information that's shared and and i'm you know often not sharing very much back unless it's um common knowledge or i've got permission um or i'll get it you know get it in writing from the player to have an individual um conversation with with somebody but you know it's it's one of those environments where you know there's a lot of transparency but there's also a lot of discretion and people understanding and valuing mental health and if you have a psychologist in the club that the players don't trust there's just no point in having them in the club so that's that's got to be first and foremost mm. Just on that topic, I heard you speak on a separate interview about how seeing a psychologist hasn't always been the normal thing to do. How have you worked to normalise seeing a psychologist? I, I think I've been really lucky, I think, in terms of my um, my opportunities here and, and also just the timing of, of being a psychologist in in, in sport at the moment. So I think when I first started in the club, the service was seen as quite a reactive um, problem solving type service. And, and there, no, no one from the company I was working with was based in the club itself. We used to come in remotely. And so almost just that, almost just that representation of, of us being a problem um, was probably not particularly appealing. But over the years, with some increased funding um, and valuing of the space, having a psychologist physically in the building, and, and I've now been moved up, I've been um, elevated to the floor of the coaches. Again, it, it's it's even in subtle, subtle things like that. So I'm opposite all the coaches. I've got John Longmire outside my office and Jared McVeigh, who we were talking about before, and all, all the coaches up here. And even just normalising that it's okay to walk into my office and have a conversation when the head coach sees you do that, or um, yeah. you know, it's on the level of the physio staff. So it's it's saying it's just as important for me to have my rub or, or my treatment as it is for me to go and speak to the, you know, the the psych. Um, so I think you know the the club. It's not necessarily something I've done. I, I think it's more about the fact that the club has valued um, that role and that contribution and, and given me the you know, greater opportunities to build relationships with players. And then it's prop from my perspective, I think it's just I've been here a number of years and just slowly building up trust with the players and, and demonstrating that confidentiality that they're so desperate for me to, to observe. Um, and, yeah, sticking around, uh, you know, time, there's nothing like time to kind of build those, th those trusting relationships. Nice. Um, last one on, on your specific the, the specifics of your role and, and it's just something that we love from the outside and that is the uh, the bloods and I would love to just hear what's it like working inside the Sydney Swans because I think across you know industry-wide everyone just has this pretty common opinion that you know there's a great culture at, yeah. at the Swans and I think it's just well 
well-renowned across the AFL mm. and just sport in general. So just keen to understand how much you enjoy it and, and what's it like. And, and just to clarify quickly, for those who don't know what Ryan's referring to, the Bloods is the culture that the Sydney Swans have developed inside that has uh, led to a lot of success. Probably should have added some some background behind <laughs> Tell us about the Bloods. <laughs> if someone didn't know what Sydney were, they'd have no idea. There you go. But it goes without saying then that, like, it's it's almost one of those it, you take it for granted that people could just kind of understand what that means. So that's yeah. I guess that's how well-established it is, um, you know, for, for, for those in the know. But, you know, you said the right word, Ruben, then, like, it's developed. It's not something that just kind of happened. It's been a really disciplined and really concerted effort to develop this culture and I I've you know been here for a number of years now but for the new guys that come in I see how quickly they are they become you know the, the word indoctrinated sort of has has negative connotations but it's just our arms are wrapped around the young guys as soon as they get here a lot of our players are from interstate and so this idea of the bloods family the bloods culture is really imperative to their I guess to their transition and into their adoption of of what it is that we do here um and again it's probably one of those times where i feel i am part of it but i also feel it's it's definitely a playing group um mentality in lots of ways and i think there's so much history um you know to the sydney swans football club you know back down to their south melbourne um roots and and if you're around for long enough and you hear some of those stories you just want to be a part of that culture. Like you you want, you feel so proud to have anything to do with the people that have come through the doors before you and the way that they've um, lived and carried themselves and played. It's more than a game of football when you think about, when you know the stories and there's, and storytelling is a big part of what we, I think storytelling is a big part of what we do at the Bloods is because that leads to connection and trust and, and a shared understanding of, of goals. But, you know, there's, I think there's a couple of P words that sort of sum it up for me. Like I mentioned pride, proud. Um, You do feel really proud to be part of this culture. Um, There's a real passion attached to it as well. Like it's something that, um, you know, you, you, even if your football, like even if performance is wavering, it's, it's, you just kind of come back to that as being something that's really grounding and that you're really passionate about. And I guess linked to that is a sense of purpose. You know, you know, you know what you're doing. Um, And a lot of the time, my conversations with athletes are when they might have lost their way in some aspect of their life, whether it's footy or otherwise. And so having that purpose piece and sometimes connecting it back to the Bloods culture or why they're here and why they, you know, what they felt when they came through the doors and what they've learned along the way helps them get back on track often. Unreal. You mentioned um, working with players on sticking to their trademark before. And that word trademark stuck out because we had a chat with Gavin Marnie from Leading Teams uh a year ago a couple of years ago now and he talked about how leading teams have played a and a role in the sydney swans developing their culture and helping people develop their individual trademark Mm. um so if anyone wants to listen to the process of how you develop your own trademark that each of these sydney swans players have gotten do the staff have their own trademark too uh interestingly we don't you know maybe we should hold ourselves accountable to (laughs) to the same standards i mean i've probably got you know some of my own like i i do i i think it's really important to consider you know my mission and my purpose and what i'm doing here and yeah i like the players i'm expected to refine it and to kind of mm. keep coming back to to checking that it's still relevant um but no you know on paper we don't we don't personally um mm. i shouldn't speak for everybody but um but the players are, are really it's it's a really important anchor that they have 
um, and we talk about it a lot. It's a big part of our language. Well, well Suze, I'm sure the Swans have got plenty of resources there, <laughs> but if you didn't otherwise, episode 30, Gav can walk you through the process from start to finish if, you, if you're interested. <laughs> well, I'd be probably the last person here that's heard it because they have done a lot of work with the Swans, so they're probably really familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, that was a great episode. Gav went into a lot of... Uh, depth on that and they, he spoke very fondly of the swans too. Knows his trademarks Gav, mm. absolutely um, So as I want to change lanes slightly just to kind of focus on one of your specialties in in learning a bit, a bit more about you prior to the, recording this, um, you shared with us that empathy is a huge skill that you use every single day to be able to do your job uh, but it's also something that everybody needs to be able to do whatever job they're doing effectively to be able to work with other people and, and achieve things in a team. Um, but not, but it doesn't come naturally to everybody. I know for me uh, specifically, it certainly didn't come naturally to me growing up. Um, for those at home who are listening to this, I was wondering if you could teach us about the, the essence of empathy and how you can start to incorporate it and use it in your everyday work, study, life, whatever you're doing. It's such a good question because I, I, I can't, I can't think off the top of my head how I would train it in somebody. You know, it's, it's one of the, it probably comes under one of those things where you're like, you're born with it. Is it something that you can teach? And, you know, we come, we ask those sorts of questions of athletes in all sorts of things, you know, leadership, are they coachable? Are they resilient? Can you teach these things? As far as empathy goes, um, you know, and it's, it's such a feeling, uh, it's such a feeling state uh, and I think some people are far more logical and practical um, and rational in their approach to people and problems whereas I'm a deep feeler and I think if anybody that's listening to this that's interested in psychology or, or kind of on that pathway you probably are um, a deep feeler and it's probably probably partly why you've gravitated to that kind of profession but you know I think as far as demonstrating empathy goes um, you know, one of the key things that I probably use a lot is, you know, a skill called reflective listening, you know, which essentially is listening to what the individual is saying. And rather than kind of thinking about the solution or trying to think about the next thing to say, is actually just paraphrasing back to them. Is this what you mean when you said this? Or it sounds like what you're trying to tell me is this, or that sounds really difficult, you know, what you're trying to communicate to me. And people you know, you, you connect with somebody when they feel heard, when they feel understood, when they feel listened to. And if you capture the essence of what they're trying to say, I think you, you have a much better chance of feeling like you've got that empathy and that connection with that person. And I know in my work, if I don't do that and I go off on a tangent of assumptions, you know, I'm human and I make mistakes like that too, um, there can be a fracture and it, it definitely feels like the empathy in the room or between, between the two parties has been disrupted. Um, I know I'm feeling a lot of empathy with somebody if I'm physically feeling some of what I think that they might be feeling or what they're telling me they're feeling. And this is sometimes when I have to kind of check myself and pull myself back. So, you know, if I can feel myself getting a bit nauseous and that's one of their symptoms of anxiety or I can feel my heart racing because I'm holding my breath while they're telling me their story. Um, I've been known to, you know, get watery eyes when somebody's telling me something deeply sad and I know that I'm deeply connected to that person and 
rather than be apologetic about that, you know, because, it, yeah, sure, you sort of think, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm feeling affected by what they're saying. I think it demonstrates to the other person that you're feeling what they're saying and that you're you're right there in the room with them and and you're you're deeply invested in them and it and it hurts you in the way that it hurts them and so that normalizes their response to things as well. Um, so I don't know if I'm the guru in terms of how to teach empathy um, because I, I I think it's probably something that I, I do think it's probably something I was born with. I, I have to manage my own sometimes when it's getting out of getting out of balance um and i know when i've when it's when it's present in the room but i definitely think as a starting point just pulling back from solutions and problem solving and just doing some of that deep reflective listening is a great way to start it's amazing what you just said there around you you sometimes show that emotion when someone is upset say in front of you and you know you start having watery eyes like I think everybody and jump in whenever you want, but you know, I've I've gone to a doctor and just burst out crying, and it's not like I'm not expecting them to cry with me, but mm-hmm. thinking about it now, I'm like, as if they did, you'd probably feel pretty good, you know. Like, I don't know if that's normal or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just like to have you able to label the re- appropriate response. Yeah, so paraphrasing. Like I kind of come across it a couple of times, but it's really nice kind of hearing things i guess explained in that way for people like myself who are like one plus two must equal three so (laughs) um so i don't know for people out there who are who might be similar who uh it does come naturally to that sort of language and labeling really helps you know weird people like me just get a grip on how do you work with others and i and i don't definitely don't think you know it's a it's a weird thing i think sometimes people can i think you know, maybe if you want to find a solution for somebody, you, you're deeply empathic, but your your way of going about it is by getting the, almost trying to fix it or trying to rescue them or take away the pain. And and that might work for some people. You might be, you know, with somebody that needs that and that might be a really valuable way of showing empathy is, hey, I can help you solve this. But then you'll get others who are not, who that's not what they need. And so empathy for them looks like just being there with them in that moment and saying, I, I can sit here with you in this distress. It doesn't scare me. It doesn't change the way I feel about you. And we can get through this together. And I don't know what the solution is right now, but that's okay because we're doing it together. And that's empathy too. Amazing. Mm. So this has been awesome chat so far, just hearing about what you're doing and, and even a deep dive into a little specialty of yours. I want to put the spotlight more on you now and, and hear about your journey to becoming a psychologist at the Swans. And I believe a, uh, a couple of failures set you up for success. Do you want to share a bit about your journey? Yeah, nothing like a, a good knock, you know, on your backside to to make you, force you to pivot, I guess, and to have to choose different things. And yeah, if, if, if it hadn't been for some of my own personal failures, I can safely say I wouldn't be doing this. I might be living like swanning it up in europe like on the european track circuit or something like that but Gee, that'd be nice yeah not, like, you can't complain though <laughs> either way not anymore. not anymore i'm too old now now that would that would also be a pipe dream and i'd just be sitting on my backside still um look i think um so my i had a background in in track and field and, and was a pretty keen runner and with some pretty big aspirations and um Unfortunately, I had a career-ending injury um, at the ripe old age of of 20, you know, right when I was 
studying I was studying psych but it was it was definitely a bit of an afterthought um I I sort of always thought I'd go into physio to be honest but um didn't think I could hack the um anatomy and the the the, the labs going to the morgue and stuff like that so I decided to stick yeah. like with the human body and on its whole um and so I guess you know when that happened and my career prospects with with running were um, shattered, I um, along with my leg, I decided to um, to really throw myself into my studies and and pretty quickly um, you know dusted myself off and and had a grief response and sort of got over that and quickly dusted myself off and got on with the the what next and. I didn't know this at the time, but now I definitely identify that growth mindset where I saw it as being an opportunity to do something different and, and that it was going to be the making of me and not the breaking of me. So definitely pursued, you know, study, um, threw myself into that, picked up an, another sport on the side because I still needed that kind of competitive um, athletic outlet. Um, but, yeah, study became my thing. And, gosh, it's a long story, but to kind of fast forward a few years, I, I, I'm fortunate to get into into the master's program um, and in my final placement um, it was one of those things where you just say out loud what you want to do and the universe kind of listens and, and pays attention and I was speaking to some people about although I was in the clean psych masters I really wanted to work in sport and I felt like maybe I'd missed my opportunity and I was really fortunate that a, a friend of mine put me in touch with a private practice that was doing a lot of work with athletes at the time and and they were just developing and, and they were sort of growing their business model and so they took me on as a as a student as an intern um, and they were working with the swans at the time and a couple of other football clubs and, and individual athletes and they really gave me a lot of opportunities to develop um, you know to spread my wings un under them um, and so the relationship with the swans was formed through an internship es essentially and, a, and, a, and an unpaid placement with um with a company um like lots of you know great volunteer opportunities and um so i earned my stripes through through that final placement and then was fortunate enough to just continue the relationship with the swans um independently so that was about eight years ago now that i that i got that got that gig and, and I'm extremely grateful for to that private practice for helping set me up and, and giving me this opportunity. Wow, how, how good's a contact, hey? Yeah, <laughs> he got you in touch with the private practice. That's just totally. yeah, your network totally. doing wonders for you. Yeah, it is. And I say, like I said to a player today, you know, in our conversations, like he, you know, he was talking about not being sure what, what else to do with his life. And I said, you know, it sometimes just starts by saying to your peers and to the people around you, what are you interested in? What are you, what are you curious about? And you just don't know who's listening and who knows who and who's got a connection or a partner or a parent or something doing some work. So don't keep that stuff to yourself. You know, if you've got an idea or a dream or a goal, like I know it sounds really cliched, but talk to people about it and you'd be surprised how much things can line up for you. Well, Suze, that's probably a nice note to lead into our final question. And that is, if you could go back to your old university and place a note on the desk of someone who's just left their spot studying for them to come back to, what would that note say? I'm going to plagiarise what I learned on my first day of my master's course um, and um, Professor Andrew Bailey got up in front of the cohort, very nervous cohort, as I'm sure they are all, all are on their first day, and he started to talk about this analogy, which 
I was completely bewildered by at the time, but has now really come full circle to mean a lot to me. And I would pass that on as, as a bit of wisdom. And he got on and started to do the whole plane demonstration when you get on and, you know, you've got, you know, masks like this might drop down from overhead in, in the event of an emergency. And I thought, this guy's lost the plot. Um, <laughs> in the wrong course. We're not doing aviation. We're doing psychology. <laughs> But his, his point and, and what I would write down on a piece of paper was um, fit your own mask for, first before fitting anybody else's. And as a psychologist uh, or anybody in a caring, helping profession, you can very quickly burn out by by the with the work that you do. If you look after everybody else first, there's just nothing left for you. Um, and a depleted, run-down, exhausted psychologist is no good to anybody. So the importance of self-care and prioritising your needs in addition to the people that you care about and your loved ones as well um, you've just got to get that balance that that balance right and it, it it always comes back to me when i find myself just running on empty is kind of coming back to how do i do that for myself did, did you take on that message straight away or did you have to kind of live it and feel it for you to really absorb it no, I've probably had a few more failures before before I kind of went back to something like that that, that sort of resonated. But no, I, I didn't. I did. First of all, I didn't really understand what it meant. I didn't really know what the profession would require, or, or like, I remember thinking, "Is this what I want to do?" Based on that kind of piece of advice, and I think he was really like he he spoke about you know the, the rate of burnout in psychologists and you know how few people actually get through it was really it was wasn't really motivating like i wouldn't give him a job <laughs> in a high performance environment by any stretch but but it was it was realistic and it was what i needed to hear because all these years later it's come back to be so, sort of something i go back to especially when i start to notice my own signs of of fatigue or burnout or just my own mental health needing a little bit of a, um, a, a refresh. So, no, it's it's something I'm learning to use. I wouldn't even say I've I've mastered it yet, but um, it's it's in there. Nice. Well, Suze, you might leave it there, but it's it's been amazing chatting today. Just getting an insight into the nature of the job that you do. Um, it, it's one of those professions that everyone is just deeply fascinated by i think it's ultra impressive and ultra interesting so thanks so much for lifting the lid on that and hearing your words about you know showing empathy and how, how you can actually use that in your day-to-day life and then just at the end there hearing about your career it, it's just great to sort of see where you've come from and and what you do now and just sharing some of those insights is absolutely amazing for our listeners so thanks a lot for your time Oh, thank you. I, I've had a lot of people help me along the way. And I always think if there's an opportunity to pay it forward and to help somebody else by giving them some clues or just a bit of motivation or, you know, making it real, I'd, um, I'd always jump at the opportunity. So thanks, guys. All righty, Rubes, what an episode. Suze is an absolute superstar. Mm. So much to take away from that. Mm. Uh, geez, sports psychology. I don't know why we haven't looked into this already. <laughs> so know. interesting. I know. Oh, what, close to 190 episodes and... 191 what? and we're bloody... We're just getting into it now. Yeah. We'll have to come back to it. We'll circle back to this yeah. again. Yeah. Um, but one of the main things that I'm leaving with from Suze is that bit around empathy and how we can show it. And she gave a really actionable takeaway, which was paraphrase. If someone's mm-hmm. opening up to you or talking to you about something... Sometimes your natural response, and this is I've definitely been guilty of this in the past, is to try and fix it. Hey, let me solve that for you. When perhaps they just need you to empathize with them and use paraphrasing 
and reflective listening as uh, Sue's described. So um, go back and have a listen to that if you haven't absorbed that deeply because that is extremely useful no matter what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I loved that last bit just then around the uh, fit fit your own face mask first. I think that's a great analogy. Look after yourself first. You know, there's plenty of time to help others, but I think she said there, you know, you can get very busy looking after other people and, and focusing on what they need and mm. what they want. Sometimes you forget about what you're needing. You can get very exhausted very, very quickly. And she said in her profession, an exhausted and unhappy psychologist does no good for anybody. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good analogy to take away, fit your own face mask first and uh, take care of yourself. Mm. And finally, if your career plans haven't gone exactly as you had intended – Take a leaf and take a bit of inspiration out of Suze's story and how she's been able to pivot and pour all of her energy and attention into becoming the best possible clinical psychologist she could become after her running career didn't take off. She's had this uh, career-ending injury, which would have been extremely hard to go through, but she's been able to adopt a growth mindset, learn from it, and start to pivot towards another area that she can begin to thrive in. And now she's living the dream at the Swans. I don't know if it gets better than that. But um, for those who are currently going through a bit of a rut or you know your career isn't right on track of where you thought it could be, take some inspiration from Suze in the direction that she's been able to lead her career in. Yeah, I love that. You win or you learn. Great mm. saying. Uh, Rubes, I know we haven't touched on sports psych before, <laughs> but we have touched on sports med and that area of sports. So, there mm. any other apps you reckon people might enjoy? Yeah, well, we mentioned um, Gavin Marnie from Leading Teams. He's a facilitator there, helps people develop their trademark, which is a, a label to help you stay focused on your mission and your purpose in life and all that, and is part of the work that they do with the Sydney Swans. So if you want to find out how to develop your own trademark, go back to episode 30 right in the first year of the podcast. He was a ripping guest to get on. And then uh, if you want to delve into the world of sports psychology, sorry, sports medicine, then jump in and have a listen to Peter Bruckner, the great Peter Bruckner. The doc. The doctor who uh, was Kathy Freeman's <coughs> doctor at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. I don't think I need to go any further than that. He's an yeah. absolute genius. And I reckon we talked to him in the early 100s, 100 to 110, somewhere in that realm. Uh, But Peter Bruckner, if you want an introduction to sports medicine or you just want some incredible stories from someone who's been around the sports industry for over 50 years, then have a listen to Peter Bruckner. Yeah. Rookie is an absolute superstar. It's a great episode. So Mm. definitely tune into that if you haven't already. Awesome. Well, connect with us on LinkedIn, plus be sure to jump into the SportsGrad community. We'd love to chat with you on there. Head to our website at sportsgrad.com.au slash community to join or head to the link in our show notes. Also, if you love the show, we would love for you to rate the show five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe on Apple or follow on Spotify so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 